On this week's episode of the Silicon Valley Podcast, we are going back to some of the past episodes where we interviewed some of the biggest names in venture capitalism. We're taking some of the highlights, some of the snippets from these episodes, and we're compiling it into this episode that we know you're going to love. Now, some other announcements, redoing a little bit of the website and some other things, and we're going to have some announcements for everyone in the coming month. Be prepared, be surprised, but right now, let's start this week's episode of the Silicon Valley Podcast. Enjoy. Welcome to the Silicon Valley Podcast with your host, Sean Flynn, who interviews famous entrepreneurs, venture capitalists, and leaders in tech. Learn their secrets and see tomorrow's world today. So when you're transitioning out of investment banking to the startup world, I mean, you just mentioned the importance of saving money and having some dry gunpowder. When you switched over, I mean, you went from this very nice salary to close to nothing. How are compensations decided amongst you and your co-founders or general the salaries at that first startup you did? And, and talk about that. Eye-opening experience for me, just not having that income. I had actually saved that money and then was able to invest that money in the first startup. A lot of my life savings or almost all of it, I kind of pushed all the chips into the middle of the table and said, I'm willing to bet on myself. That's what ended up happening there. A riches to rags story, right? The reverse of rags to riches because I, I went from making a lot of money to, to making pretty much nothing. For me, it was almost more like rags to rags. So <laughs> I, you know, I, I wasn't living an investment banker lifestyle while I was an investment banker. I wasn't accustomed to that life and wasn't needing that life. Didn't have those obligations. I didn't have a car. My apartment was very decent. You know, I wasn't buying Gucci or Prada. I just I wasn't accustomed to those things. It was easy for me not to live a lifestyle that was lesser than I was accustomed to. I had just continued to save my money. I mean, I think a lot of people looked at my life and, and kind of laughed at it. When I moved back to San Francisco, I lived in something called a SRO, which is a single residency occupants. Pretty much looked like a decommissioned Hotel 6. It was very humble. And I stayed there for a long time. I actually only recently moved out of that apartment. My mindset was still that of the stories I had heard about Mark Cuban and, and Elon Musk and, and others to where it's like, don't focus on right now. Don't live your best life right now. Dedicate your time and dedicate your money and all your focus and effort and, and be obsessed about becoming something that you want to become. And so that's what I had done. I, you know, Mark Cuban talks about basically not having things in his life that would distract him. I was very much along those same kind of line. I didn't have a TV in my apartment, which is kind of crazy. I didn't have a video game system. I, I hadn't had these things that I was kind of accustomed to growing up or wanted or needed or thought I did. By putting myself in those situations, there was nothing to do but work. Is a hell maybe inside its own scape. For me, it, it was actually kind of liberating. You know, it was like I only had one focus and that focus was to build. I did nothing but build. Fast forward now, I've, I've actually got a, a nice place and I, I'm living to, you know, learning to live a little bit more like a normal human. It was, I definitely was very, very focused. Wasn't making anything in the startup world. I was more focused on others than I was myself. And I think that a good leader needs to take care of the pack before they take care of themselves. So tell me about that pack. How did you decide who got to join, how to kick them out if they weren't working? <laughs> what was the fire and hiring experience like for your, your startup? networking was, was the number one key, right? You know, you and I run into each other all over the valley. It's funny how many people Sean knows. He knows everybody. 
Yeah, I talk to people and they're like, oh yeah, Sean, you know Sean? I know Sean. That's because you're such a great networker. And I'd like to think that I'm okay at it and I'm always striving to get better. It's incredible to me how small the world is. And I think that you never know who's going to swing back around in your life at any given point and what you could do with them. And so I think for me, it was just networking like crazy, right? Always going out and meeting people. Even when I was in investment banking, I was joining the boards of companies. I was advising companies. I was trying to do anything I could to just get in front of people. I, I know you always kind of used to you know, be like, what are you doing here? When I'd show up to 8Bay Angels or any of the other investor networking events. And it was just me trying to learn and to also provide value if I could. You know, Some of the first companies that I started being a board member or being an advisory board member to, they needed finance help or they needed uh, model building help or they needed help raising money. And those were things that I could provide offering that, you know, that service to be able to learn from them the product side or building and organizing a company, operations, all, all of these things. And so Gary Vaynerchuk, is, he has a book. It's good. I'd recommend it. Give, give, take, right? It's kind of the philosophy of it. It's all about giving and then eventually asking for something. That was kind of my philosophy going into this is like, you never meet somebody in their first meeting is like, Hey, can you do this for me? Cause the answer is going to be no. You know, it's, you want them to see, and this is good for venture capital too. You want them to see a story, right? You don't want them to see a snapshot in time. If they see a snapshot in time of one thing that you've done, they have nothing to really put that against in any other knowings of you. But if you show them a whole story, that's more like a movie instead of a picture, they can be like, Oh wow, Daniel was doing this and now he's here. And they're like, wow, okay. He does what he says he does. You know, he can do what he says he does. That was, I think, you know, something that was important to me is just getting out and networking. The biggest thing though, is in you have all these opportunities flying at you and, and all these people, and then you need to qualify. So now you got your leads. How do you qualify them? And for me, one of the biggest things I stand by ancient agricultural, or you can find it in the Bible. It's in second Corinthians. It talks about being equally yoked. And what that means is back in the day when an oxen would plow a field, there was a yoke that would attach one oxen to the other. And that yoke would then allow those oxen to drive in unison and, and plow the field. But if the yoke wasn't as tight you know, as, as it was on one of the oxen, or it was misaligned or something, the job wasn't done correctly. And uh, for me, in any relationship that I get into, I always think about the equally yoked aspect. For starting a company, that can mean a lot of things, right? Are your work ethics equally yoked? You know, is this person going to work as hard as you? What about age? You know, like are they the same age as you or in a point in their life to where they have to go home and take care of a family and you just got out of you know, college, right? Because those are two very different things. I can tell you there's no worse feeling in the world than being that person sitting alone in the office, trying to plow the company forward, trying to move the mission forward, and no one else is with you. And that's unequally yoked. I think also fortitude, you know, like what happens when the going gets tough? You know, is this person built like you? You know, if, if you have a hardship and you're running out of money for your startup, are they going to be able to have the iron stomach that you have to be able to get through it, to not pay, take a paycheck? You know, maybe this person's in debt. And if they're in debt and you're not, and they need that paycheck and you don't, you can actually, that's an equally yoke. Go into any relationship, whether it's, you know, uh, romantic or, you know, whether it's uh, a business relationship or even a friendship, and just make sure that you're equally yoked. Because if you're not, somebody's always going to be giving, someone's always going to be taking. And you want that unison partnership to where it's like give and take together in unison. 
So that's kind of the things I think of, uh, about when you know I think about team members and who do I want on my team? You know, I want somebody that's equally yoked. And then other than hiring or finding those team members that are equally yoked, everyone's working together in unison to yeah. solve these problems. What were some of the early struggles that you came across? You probably have stories and I know I have a ton of stories about getting into relationships where you were unequally yoked. That is the number one burden. And people say that all the time, right? Like, why'd your startup fail? Our product didn't hit or, you know, financials weren't there or something. Probably not the case is probably stems back to being unequally yoked with the founding team. You can almost do anything if you're on the same page as someone else. And that's at least what I've learned and experienced. Or you are on the same page to call it quits. Financials are a huge thing, right? It's very interesting to always listen to somebody talk about their company. And how, what do they say first? We've raised you know, 100 million in venture capital money. We have 2 billion in revenue or you know, whatever the number is, right? If they don't talk about their product and they don't talk about their customer experience and what they're doing for the customer, it's probably a red flag. When I go and I'm either investing in something or joining a team, you know, whether it's board member or, or full-time, I want to hear whoever's the visionary of the product talk about it. And if it's all about financials, if it's all like basically Wall Street mumbo jumbo, right? Doing this and we've grown this and we've done that. And they're not talking about their product. They're not talking about who they're servicing. They're not talking about that their customers are just so excited about the product that they can't stop talking about it. It's kind of a red flag. Once you get past that point and you know the team is equally yoked, you're driven on a mission to make a good product and you have a good product, then I also think that it's been about aesthetics. So I've I've been in companies to where the product was phenomenal. You know, we had a great software stack or we had a great product, but it was all the back end was really good and really strong. And the front end wasn't. It's like having a sports car engine and a junkyard car body. And if you look at a junkyard car body and you're like, wow, that car looks really rusted. You know, the seats are all ripped up. Looks looks horrible. You know, looks homeless person lives in there or something. I don't want anything to do with that. Well, you go and open up the hood and it's got a Ferrari engine. Okay, well, I never would have guessed that. And there's so many startups that have a junkyard body and a Ferrari engine. And it's because they're really good at building the API. They're really good at building the core software, but they don't know how to wrap it. You know, they don't know how to put it in a box and in a container to where it's like, wow, that's a Ferrari, right? And it's got a Ferrari engine. And so I think for me, you know, one of the biggest struggles that I had is working with technology innovators that didn't understand that. We can get into stories of competitors and, and things that I've had uh, happen to me later on. But you know, that, that's a huge thing is the aesthetics of the product. We're a very visual culture. You know, people are all about aesthetics and, and visual appeal. And if you're not just looking at that and, and, and giving that person the visual appeal that makes them question to say, I want more, I want to know more then you're not going to get past the first step. So that was really difficult. I think also sales team. Here in Silicon Valley, I think people are really good at building things, right? But they're really bad at selling things. It almost takes a different kind of person to come in and sell things. And a lot of the times, the salesperson isn't equally yoked with the technology person. You know, They're on very different goals, very different personalities, you know, just very different mission. That has been something that's been really difficult for, for me. You know, is like, how do you balance between being an innovator and an entrepreneur, but also selling? And so for me personally, that's meant rolling up my sleeves. You know, I'm not a professional salesperson, but I can tell you in the startup that we have now, 
I've made almost every sale for us in, in at least in the early days. Other ventures I've done, you know, I, I was the person who won the biggest clients who went out and, and met those people. And I did it the same way that I got that internship. You know, I, I would just cold call. This is what I have to offer you. I'd love to, you know, have some of your time. I'll give you this for free. I'll spend some time with you and see if I can help you. Not getting, not being like, oh, I'm the finance guy or I'm the operations person or I'm, you know, whatever, right? Step outside of that box and wear all those hats. You know, it's kind of a joke in Silicon Valley that we always say, oh, well, I'm wearing many hats, uh, but not a lot of people actually are. You know, it's very rare to find somebody who's actually making the sales on the product meetings, you know, innovating on the product side, who's spending time with the technology team, who's spending time with finance and the operations team, and who knows it all, right? Kevin O'Leary on Shark Tank will always say, what's your numbers, right? You know your business. The thing that I find is people don't. They know one aspect of their business, but they don't know how to get out and learn the other aspects. And I don't know if it's whether they think they can't or they just, they don't put the effort in. And what I've, I've been in experiences to where they don't put the effort in, you know, you need to get out of that mind frame, uh, frame of mind and just kind of say, I can do anything, you know, that I put time and effort in. And how many meetings do you say you went to before you got that first investor that said, you know, I'm interested in writing a check. He may have not written a check, but that first validation of, yeah, I think you got something. Oh my God. <laughs> that's a, that's an interesting question because. I really, really don't know how many, but definitely over a hundred meetings. I'm, I'm not kidding. Over at least 500 emails and so many rejections. And even with our first investor, when she, she was evaluating the company, one thing that I was so excited is because she's a female, very successful female in, in Silicon Valley. I was really excited to, to make sure that she comes in, believes in, in, in Roy B. But even for, uh, at the last minute, I wasn't even sure it's going to happen. <laughs> so it, it was quite challenging. For that first investor, what type of valuation do you give your company? Are you saying, you know, you're the investor, just tell me what you want? Or do you have an idea going into that meeting? You know, it varies depending on the, the companies. Of course, we had a number in mind. Generally, that's not what is going to happen. <laughs> the reality is always really different. But I think it's just the conversation between the investors, founders, find the right number. One thing I want to say is don't get stuck with the valuation because in the beginning, it's really hard to put a value on a company. Of course, if you can get a deal at no cap, <laughs> it's, it's amazing. What do you mean by no cap? It means no valuation. So if you can raise on a safe uh, agreement without a valuation, that would be your best bet. But it's really hard to do it. But I'd say don't get stuck on it. Move forward because at the end of the day, the valuation you can get in the future, it's, it's more important. Get your product out and it's quality over quantity. So you're saying that first pre-seed round may not be the best terms, but you got to do it anyway to get to that A round where you'd have more leverage. Is that kind of it? Yes. Of course, if you have the ability to finance the, the company on tier series A and get some revenue, that's the best case scenario. But it's not the case with most startups because it's very costly these days. You need to really think about your options between the offers that you have. 
make the right decision with the best option. It's not going to be the best. And I'm sure uh, next round, a lot of people are going to tell you, why did you make this decision? But be confident that the decision you make at that moment probably is the best for the company. So 500 emails, 100 meetings face-to-face. How many months did you go without any money? The best thing I can say is whatever you think, add another six months. And personally, I, I'd say two times my own bank account almost went to zero. <laughs> I've been really lucky to have amazing friends and supporters that they said, oh, okay, here is a little bit of money, move forward, um, you are on, a, on something really amazing, build it and everything is going to be okay. And it's exactly that's what happened. One or two weeks after we, we got investment, things move forward. It was very hard, but I say for one year, have savings and consider whatever you think the expenses are going to be more and it's going to take more time than you think. And then when you finally got that investment, one, how did it feel? Two, what was the team's feedback when they heard about it? And well, I kind of want you to say the number that it was. July, we announced and closed 4.2 million in our seed round. And at that point, it was super, super exciting because we didn't even have the product. (laughs) So purely the investors invested in the company and uh, the vision, the skills of the team. I, I remember, you know, I, I still can feel the same. And I, every time I talk about it, I get so excited <laughs> because it's a significant amount of capital at the stage that we were. Everybody was so excited. I was stressed out, overwhelmed, super excited. I was also scared <laughs> because with that much capital and the trust that investors are putting in you also comes a lot of responsibilities. And, uh, but I'd say it was the best thing that happened. And every time I think about it, I really feel excited. The time that I sent a message to our team, called my co-founder, he, he was like almost jumping up and down. <laughs> it was really, really amazing. That sounds more like an A round than a pre-seed <laughs> round where companies already have traction, already have customers. Who came up with that number? Did you propose it to the investors or did they propose it going... This is how much we think you need. What were the conversations like? It's interesting because originally we were just thinking about raising 1 million for our seed round. And then we we were thinking to go to like, let's say 5 million in our series A, which made sense at that point because we are a hardware company. So we need a lot more capital than just a software company. It's just that we were getting a lot of traction at that point. We, we were featured on CNN. We partnered with Alibaba. You know, we were getting so many things, a lot of awards traction. So the investors got so excited and said, hey, you need this capital anyways. And we have all the means to, to provide this capital to you at this stage. Instead of wasting your time, you know, going for another round, why not have this deal together? And the terms worked out. Both sides were happy and that's how it's happened. Tell me about some of these awards you won and also how long is this money expected to last? First, the awards. <laughs> we, we won so many of them. I can barely remember. But um, last week, for example, CNBC named Roy B one of the most promising startups in the world to watch in 2019. 
which is amazing because there are only 100 startups on that list around the world. And Roybe is one of them. And again, the product is not even on the market. So you can imagine how exciting it is. We, we were named Fast Company's world-changing idea in 2019. We won through our sites award in Tech for Good. We were one of the winners nationwide and many more. But also it was very exciting. And what is the second question? How long is this money going to last you? And actually, I'll just follow on with another question there. What are you going to do in that time frame? What are the milestones that are expected to be made? So um, the money we would expect to last um, easily one year. And uh, the next milestones would be to make sure we have a good product in people's hands because everybody's so excited. It would be to focus on sales, marketing, making the product better, launching the US and Canada. And then we are launching also in, in UAE. So we want to expand in Middle East for sure, expand the countries. That would be the, the plan so far. Talk about that expansion plan, because most companies I talk to, they want to go North America, then Europe, not UAE. Well, for us, considering we are a language learning company, as you can imagine, there is a lot of demand in English language in certain regions and countries. And Middle East is definitely one of it. And in Middle East, they also really like products that come out of Silicon Valley. So they got so excited. We are launching into stores. They're called Sharaf DG. They're like Best Buy in, in US. They're very big and they want to launch Roybe into, into stores and for their children to, to learn English language. How important is it in, as a startup to position yourself? What insights, what advice, thoughts can you share on this? This is super important, I think, to position the company because many times when we see the success stories, right, like Facebook, the Googles, the Zooms now, we think that they work for everybody, right? That they provide their service for everybody that is out there, right? All 8 million people in the globe. That is not true, especially when you think about how each one of these companies begins. Even Facebook, it began on college campuses, targeting a specific age demographic, targeting a specific behavioral profile. It's very important early on to find that group of consumers, that segment that acts the same way and is most likely to adopt the product or service as fast as possible. All companies should do that, especially in the beginning. Once you start to grow, you can say, well, okay, like for Seeker Health, we were really well positioned for emerging biopharmaceutical companies working in rare diseases and working in cancer. Well, now that we're growing, we can grow. We can go after Pfizer. We can go after those others. But it's very important in the beginning to get traction, quick traction in a group of customers that really needs what you are offering today. Now, many startups, I mean, they want that funding so they can go out and hire as many people as possible. They want to grow a team. In fact, a lot of people brag about, hey, I now, you know, I'm going to increase my company by 20 employees next quarter and we'll have 100 employees by the end of the year. It seemed like you did the exact opposite approach. You tried to keep it as small as possible. In fact, I remember hearing you're hiring blank slates. Now, can you talk to us and give us a little insight of your hiring and once again, do the opposite of everyone. And instead of grow as fast as possible, keep it as small and as, I guess, family as you did. Let's start with blank slate. Blank slates are these individuals that perhaps do not have all the experience that is required to take on the job, but they're smart. 
they can learn fast and they believe in the mission. And they think that working at this company is a good thing to do with their limited time on this planet, right? So that's what I consider a blank slate. Probably the opposite of a blank slate is an adult in the room, which is where a lot of the startups at some point tend to hire very expensive managers, that leaders that are going to know what they're doing because they probably have done it before. Because I was bootstrapping the company, I certainly didn't have money to hire adults in the room. (laughs) But I didn't want them necessarily either at that stage in the company. I found that the blank slates, these people that were really hungry to learn, were really excellent growing with the business. And to some extent, what we were doing at Seeker Health wasn't really being done anywhere else. So it wasn't like I could find I could write a job description that said, I need this prior experience and that prior experience would exist. It really didn't exist. At the end of the day, blank slates was what it was all about. Now let's go to the numbers. Every time I would go to these sort of like startup or founder type of meetups, people would always ask me three questions. How much money did you raise? Zero was my answer. Who did you raise it from? No one. And then how many employees do you have? As few as possible. There's sort of like this sense that more employees mean more traction. There is a perspective that if you are building a company and now you have all these seats filled, that now the company can move much faster traction in the market. But it's not always right. I was trying to build here a revenue-generating, profitable company. So for me, it was very important to keep the team small, to give them really broad jobs, jobs that would make them really excited, that they were learning so many different things in this job that they could take on, of course, to their next step in their career. That's really what I was looking for. So that's why the team was small. And you'd also talked about the due diligence being very demanding for being acquired. Can you talk a little bit about what happened in that due diligence process? Yes. After the letter of intent gets signed, Generally, the companies will begin their due diligence workflows. And generally, due diligence is in both directions. The acquirer will do a very extensive search and audit, basically, of the acquiree. But then the acquiree also gets to do some due diligence on the acquirer to make sure, let's say, that they have the cash that they're talking about to acquire your company and so forth. I'll speak mostly about what I had to present to the acquirer. Think of these workflows as a complete audit of your company. Anything that's pretty much ever happened to the company that has a signature somewhere needs to be presented back for review. There is a way to prepare for this from the beginning. Five years into the company, it's sort of too late to start organizing all of the information that is needed for the due diligence. But if we're doing it as we're going along and building the company, then it's much easier. Choir is going to be looking for all the formation information, right? The articles of incorporation, anything that had to do with stock issuances, with directors, with minutes, all of those things. They're going to be looking at the technology itself. If you are selling technology and auditing that and seeing if they can make, can continue to grow and maintain it. Um, they're going to be looking at every contract that the company has ever engaged in. They're going to be looking at every employee. <laughs> They're going to be looking at every invoice that has ever been sent out of the company and into the company. Basically, bottom line for founders is that it's really important to be organized, right? This information needs to be organized from the beginning. It's really difficult to go back five years, even three years, and then put all this together. So from the beginning, organize your folders. You know, In my book, you have the list of what you need to keep. And have these folders set up already so that when a data room right gets set up for your due diligence, 
you are just simply moving folders over, right? Wouldn't that be a dream? So wait, Sam, you're a startup CEO coach. And this is just coming to my mind right now. While we're talking about executing and planning, a lot of startups with mentors, when it's a simple problem, no big issue. They've faced it before. They have an answer for it. But when it gets a little bit more complicated, a little bit more a superficial problem, things just break down. Why is it when the problem gets tough, the mentor may not be there? Why is it that complex problems are a challenge? I faced this myself. I was a first-time CEO with startup number four. And quite honestly, I didn't really know what I was doing. So I was learning for the first time and I made lots of mistakes. I ran into tons of problems and my friends, who I had a very strong support network, tried to help me a ton. I got introduced to various advisors, et cetera. Many of those conversations went something like, tell me about your problems. Tell me what you need. They'd ask one or two questions. It would go five minutes. And then I proceed to get 30 to 60 minutes worth of feedback. The challenge was these guys didn't have the chance to prepare, nor did they ask for any preparation in advance. They didn't really dig deep. So some of my problems weren't simple. The soundbite advice was not something that I was going to solve it. What made the difference for me was when I ran into another person who was very different in his approach. We spent two hours together talking and he asked, obviously, 15, 20 questions. And we went back and forth. After the two hours were done, then and only then did he start giving advice. And it made a huge difference because he understand the detail. Then I could actually work with him together. And what I found was that the soundbite advice I'd gotten was pretty much worthless because either I had already tried it, it wasn't applicable in our situation, or there was something else wrong with it. When I sat with this other mentor who spent the time to really learn what was going on, that's what made the difference. And that's what I really tried to do because many startup mentors today spend just five hours a month with their startup. If it's only five hours a month, you might be able to do a meeting every other week and then some follow-up outside of the meeting. I think relationship by itself limits how much those mentors can do. They can be very good at what they do, but the structure of the relationship, I think, is flawed in many situations. If you have an, a phenomenally great founder who you just tell them, climb Mount Everest, and they figure it out and they can do it, great. That's sufficient. But I find that most founders need a little bit more help than just climb Mount Everest, stay safe, bring warm clothes. Now, speaking of problems that founders might run into, to that first question, we talked about your five companies that three were successful and two weren't that had problems. We never really dived into those two that weren't successful. Can we circle back and can you go into a little bit more detail about the problems that as a founder or the team might have come across in those startups and what you learned from it? I think one key lesson was from startup number two. We had a technology platform that allowed two enterprise applications to integrate very easily. It was an early version of what Zapier does today. We were based on web services technology and UDDI. It was the rage of the day back in the 2000 timeframe. But for whatever reason, we had chosen not to highlight that. In fact, we downplayed that because I think some of the logic was we didn't want Microsoft to crush us because that's what they were doing. So we went and took this under the radar marketing approach and it ended up not working out. There was some problems where when we saw one of our competitors make some of the same decisions, 
we went and said, Hey, they're doing that. It, we must be on the right path. Problem was both of us were lost. Okay. So they shut down and we ended up shutting down. And the sad thing was, is it was great technology. One of the larger companies in the space, BEA, acquired our competitor, a company named Crossgain, for $30 million. Unfortunately, Crossgain had no shipping product, no customers, and a lawsuit pending with Microsoft because they had tons of Microsoft employees. BEA was local here in the Bay Area and Crossgain was in Seattle. So they also had a distance issue in integrating the companies. We were local. We had a shipping product. We had revenue. We had no lawsuit and we were right down the street. But since we didn't really highlight that we were in this space, this company didn't think of us as potential acquisition candidates. So we made a mistake in the marketing approach. I think in addition, I would say experience matters. There was one startup that had four Harvard grads, including three that were Harvard MBAs, one MIT grad, two Stanford folks, but almost everybody, including myself, was early in career. These were folks who, with a little time and a little seasoning, would be phenomenal contributors, and many of them have become that. Many have gone on to be VPs at name brand startups. That was only my second time as a VP. I thought I knew what I was doing, but now looking back, I was like, I didn't, I still had a lot to learn. So the experience matters because the talent that you have encapsulate that experience. The talent, again, matters. And we had, there were a number of startups, not just this one, that had some talent problems. There was one startup where we had a techie who, I go back, there's a couple of situations. One was a techie, one was a sales guy, and one was a sales executive. For the situation with the techie, he was charged with running the database and he was still learning his trade and he just wasn't a good fit. HR was very hesitant to part ways because there's the attorney said, hey, there's tons of risk. Well, we built a case that says, hey, this is not a good fit. It was very objective. It wasn't personal. We weren't mean to the guy. We let the guy down gently, gave him a package, took care of him, made sure he had healthcare coverage for his family. And we parted ways. That was the right thing to do because the, he just wasn't a good fit. There's another situation where we had a sales guy who wasn't passing muster. When we let him go, our sales went up, even though we were down one player. So because everybody was taking time to help this guy out, they weren't doing their own jobs. And there was another situation where we had a sales executive that wasn't a good fit. He had some good talent but not in a startup space because he didn't have startup skills. He had big company skills. The senior team was afraid of letting him go because we were in the middle of fundraising. They thought it would look bad if we lost a VP level person while we're fundraising. I challenged that notion because yes, we lost a guy, but, and if anybody of the investors ask, we say, well, we had a person who wasn't a good fit and we made the super difficult decision to amicably part ways. Being a CEO is all about being willing to make the hard decisions in life, not run from them. Yes, there would have been some eyebrows raised. Some of the investors say, hey, what happened? The clear and truthful explanation was he wasn't a good fit. We decided to amicably part ways. He was the highest paid person in the company. All right. So that was a drain on resources as well. But when you realize, okay, this isn't good, I'm going to clean up my own mess. Okay. Those are the hard decisions that comes into play because ultimately these people who are playing their roles, their judgment matters. I can't tell you how many times key decisions were made in various startups or consulting projects 
that ended up crippling the company. If you make enough crippling decisions, the company will die. If you make enough good decisions, the company has a strong chance of success. And those decisions are made by the people and the judgment that these people have. So you had made the comment, and it really resonated with me, the team of Harvard MBAs, Stanford MBAs, all these people that were early in your career. And on your website, when you go to the homepage, it does say in that video, it takes more than a single success to really learn the ropes in the startup space. Now, can you dive more into that sentence, that comment? I absolutely believe it because there are many situations where somebody has some good fortune and has a phenomenal exit. There are stories of many founders who, because they got a billion dollar exit, suddenly are a celebrity, but they've done it one time and only one time. There was an instance where a founder had two successful exits, but company number three and number four ended up dying horribly because he had only known success. He didn't know, he didn't tasted the mistakes and he hadn't had an opportunity to learn from them. So there was another situation where a company got a big fat exit and he got a lot of visibility because congratulations, you got a billion dollar exit. But that founder's uh, second venture, I heard about what they were doing. I immediately saw that's not going to work because they had this problem, this problem, this problem, this problem. About six months later, they had this major pivot, laid off half of their staff, and they went in a completely different direction. It's not just about what I would say uh, being lucky one time. Because a lot of times it's really, maybe you just happen to buy the right stock and your portfolio goes through the roof. But can you do that, especially in a bear market and not just in a bull market? Those are the things that I think it matters a lot when you've lost money and you realize, oh, okay, don't do that again. Okay. I certainly made a ton of those mistakes and you know, my checkbook shows it as well. Now you just mentioned something about someone having a billion dollar exit, but then their third or fourth company, maybe not doing so good. Well, I mean, when I travel outside of Silicon Valley and I tell people I'm from here, I work in tech, people just automatically assume it's all glory. Do you have any experience that you can share that maybe to elaborate on that, that maybe what people hear in the news and reality, maybe aren't really as aligned as some people might think? Yeah, it's the sad truth of the matter is, even though I love being in the startup space, it's actually very, very hard and pretty risky because 95% of startups either fail or dramatically miss expectations. There was actually an analysis done. In fact, we could do the simple math ourselves. The average salary for a senior staff engineer here in the Bay Area, according to LinkedIn survey, is $194,000. So it's just under 200K. In five years' time, if you are a, at that level, you'll get a million dollars in salary just from doing a decent job and not getting fired. Well, a lot of people chase that carrot on the end of the stick. And they think that, ooh, if I left my job, I can become a startup success bazillionaire. When the math really doesn't demonstrate that, you actually have to be very lucky and the moons almost have to align and you have to have just the right team to execute well. The, the reality is that Startups are hard. And I know that when I was doing startup number four, again, I was the first time CEO, I was pouring all sorts of my own time, energy, and money because it felt like every month I had to give a pint of blood and a pound of flesh. I remember one time where we had a situation, we had a customer uh, project where customers just didn't pay us. They owed us a quarter million dollars. They just didn't pay us. 
there were no complaints. There were no issues. They were just growing so fast that they changed accounting systems, lost our bill, and it took months for us for them to finally pay us. Five months later, we finally got our check. So that really hits you when you, you need that quarter million dollars to make payroll. There was another situation where, I think I talked about the situation earlier where we were deploying firewalls all across the globe. There was a situation where that project yeah, ran into some problems. Some of it client issues, some of it our issues. I remember we were trying to deploy some gear into Mexico and we shipped it down there, but the recipient refused to sign for it. FedEx shows up at the destination. Here's your packages. But the recipient wouldn't sign it because it had some export paperwork that he wasn't familiar with. So we refused to sign it and the shipment didn't get delivered. The client blamed me because I was the guy who shipped it when I could easily point the fingers and whatever. It didn't matter who was right or wrong. The problem was the gear wasn't there. The deployment was delayed. In the top of running the company, I actually had to bend over backwards. It's like I had a second 40 hour a week job and the client was threatening to sue us. I had personally guaranteed the finances of the company. So a lot of the bank agreements I had signed, if the company went down, I would lose my house quite likely. Okay. So my stress level was through the roof and it was really challenging. I remember what it was like because in order to solve that problem, I had to call the U.S. consulate in Mexico and the consulate happened to have a staffer there. I don't even remember his name. The guy dropped everything to help me. He found a friend who ran a company that did copiers and he said, okay, this guy will sign for it. So just pay him. So I wired the guy $2,000. He sends a van over to FedEx, signs for the paperwork, drives the gear across to the colo, the data center across the town, drops it off, and then problem solved. He makes $2,000 for about an hour's worth of driving. But in order to get to that point, I mean, I had no idea the U.S. consulate even had this type of services in the Department of State. Thank you so much. You saved my bacon on that project. Now there are other problems I still had to go solve. Those are things where I was fretting like crazy because I thought we were going to lose my house and my kids would not have a place to live. Those are challenges. I mean, I tell you, my wife and I, she was concerned and there was lots of times we didn't see things eye to eye. Those are the realities of what happens. And thankfully we had a strong support network who helped us. We got marriage counseling together, but if we didn't have that, I'm not sure, honestly, I'm not sure I'd be married. And you know, sadly, those are decisions that have a much broader impact. I happen to know a number of founders whose wives did leave them. And I can tell you this much, you can have lots of jobs in life. You should only have one family. Thank you for listening to the Silicon Valley Podcast. To access our resources, visit us at thesiliconvalleypodcast.com and follow our host on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn at Sean Flynn SV. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decisions, consult a professional.